Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. And Kristen, as you know, this week we were captivated by some articles that came out in the New York Times mm-hmm. about um, women soldiers. Uh, one article is called G.I. Jane Breaks the Combat Barrier by nice. Lizette Alvarez. Clever headline. And another was called Living and Fighting Alongside Men and Fitting In by Stephen Lee Myers. And both of these articles talk about the great strides that women soldiers are making in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And also kind of how on the flip side of that, how the military is having to readjust to accommodate more women um, in more roles in Mm -hmm. the military as well. What these writers are putting forward is that these are the first real wars where women have had a role in the actual combat. You know, there is obviously a long history of women being involved in the military in some form or another. Of course, there are women who dressed up as men to fight, but these are the first ones where women are really getting in there, and they're attributing this to just sort of the changing nature of these wars. Mm-hmm. There is no actual front line. Um, you have a lot more risk of, say, like roadside bombs and things like that. It's just a whole different, whole different type of warfare going on. Right. You could pretty much, you know, always get shot at. So there's no front line. Yeah. But previously, the front line was this place that was just completely off limit to women, thanks to some regulations put in place by the military. Yeah, women um, have not have been barred from uh, joining combat branches. Uh, including the infantry, armor, special forces, and most field artillery units, and um, from doing some support jobs in smaller units as well. And to change these, these policies would require congressional approval. And even when women started making these big strides, you know, really distinguishing themselves in combat, uh, then-President Bush essentially said, you know, there will be no women in combat. Mm-hmm. And one of the main reasons cited for not allowing women in the infantry and on these front lines of combat is women's lack of upper body strength. And um, 
I would have to say just kind of the stereotypical, you know, gender roles of women as, you know, um, the gentler sex, if mm-hmm. you will, um, simply not, you know, being fit to be in, in such a high pressure area. Right. And I think there's also this worry that the American public will just be furious if they see someone's mother come home in a coffin. Obviously, right. seeing anyone come home in a coffin is tragic and awful, but is there some sort of conception that people have that it's even worse if it's, as Kristen said, the gentler sex? Yeah, but um, there have been um, more opportunities for women um, in the military. For instance, uh, the one of the articles, New York Times articles, Molly, that you were talking about, mentions that the Marine Corps, um, which is very, you know, think of as a very kind of typically macho um, branch in the military, um, opened up two more categories of intelligence jobs for women, specifically because of their important contributions in Iraq and in Afghanistan. And I think that other branches of the military are sort of just finding ways to get around these rules. Mm-hmm. For example, you can't be assigned to a combat unit, but what they're doing is a little bit of wordsmithing and saying these women are attached to those units. And then, you know, as those units pretty much just find themselves in the midst of it all, the women can serve. And by all accounts, New York Times, Washington Post, a few other articles you read, these women are serving with tremendous courage and just making, you know, a real name for women in the military with their bravery, their valor. I can't use enough great words to describe these accomplishments. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and because of this, there has been more lobbying to the Pentagon and to Congress to open up more roles for women so they don't, to get around this idea of attached versus assigned because these women are doing their jobs. They're in high pressure areas. A medic on the streets in Baghdad, you know, is arguably as just at just as much risk as someone in a more frontline position somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And pointing to one of the biggest accomplishments, uh, biggest milestones for women in the military in 2008, the first um, woman four-star general was appointed, General Ann E. Dunwoody. And the interesting thing about that was a lot of times um, four-star generals would have to go through, um, would fight in a lot of combat situations in order to earn all of their stars, but that would be impossible for a woman to do because, like we said, women are barred from frontline combat. And some of it's, you know, very tricky. Like, you know, there are certain guns you can use, but you can't use other ones. I mean, the, the rules can seem a little bit arbitrary. Right. For instance, um, according to this New York Times article, uh, women can serve as machine gunners on Humvees, but can't operate Bradleys. Um, and they can work on some long range artillery, but not short range ones. And women can serve as uh, military police on the streets of Iraq, but not as members of the infantry. Right. So the women who are really kind of breaking the barriers are doing so just by earning their colleagues respect. Very simple way to get ahead. Um, and let's talk about how many women very quickly are, are involved. It's estimated that since 2001, about two million Americans have fought overseas to defend our freedom and that 220,000 of them have been women. That's about 11 percent. And 121 have died and 66 of those deaths were in combat. Yeah. And that's more, that's more casualties, women casualties than, and this is according to the Washington Post, I believe, um, than Korean, Vietnam and the Gulf War combined. Yeah. So obviously we're in the middle of a big sea change, perhaps in the military, perhaps the regulations might change at some point. You know, in these articles, the women and also their male superiors talk about they don't see how it can't change after the accomplishments women have made in these two wars. Yeah, and we are seeing more women in leadership roles um, right now, even though women are making up only 6% of the top military ranks. Um, it's more than double the number a decade ago. 
So there have had to be some changes to make this possible. You're more likely to go to a base camp and see a woman's bathroom, um, you know, separate spaces for showers. Mm-hmm. Medics in the camp have seen their fair share of gynecological patients. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing that was interesting in these articles is they talked about the rates of pregnancy. Motherhood has always been sort of this barrier to service. Obviously, if they've got kids at home, but what happens if they get pregnant during service? Yeah. Um, apparently some women soldiers do get pregnant, have to be shipped home within two weeks. But, you know, the Washington Post points out that it's no more than rates of men who have to leave service because of family issues at home. Right. And it's now kind of an accepted fact that sex in the military is going to happen at some point. Male and female soldiers are going to commingle. But I do feel it's important to distinguish, Kristen, that um, they're recognizing consensual commingling. Mm-hmm. And that brings me to, you know, part of the reason why these articles captivated me so much is you don't see a lot of positive news about women in the military. These articles talked about, you know, the great strides they're making, but you see a lot more articles about the the real challenges they face in terms of sexual assault and rape. Yeah, there's uh, been a pretty startling um, Department of Defense report about sexual assault in the military. It wasn't until I think it was 2006, while Donald Rumsfeld was still Secretary of Defense, when the military really started looking into this problem of um, sexual assault in the military. And uh, for instance, uh, according to a CBS report um, from earlier this year, one in three female soldiers Soldiers will experience sexual assault while serving in the military. And that is compared to one in six women in the civilian world. Even the New York Times articles point out that the women have to sometimes carry, you know, protection against their fellow soldiers with them. And then we were reading this absolutely devastating salon article by Helen Benedict, who talks about, um, you know, women soldiers carrying knives, not to defend themselves against Iraqis, but against their fellow soldiers. Mm -hmm. And issues where women have been too terrified to actually get up in the middle of the night and go to the latrines uh, to get some water uh, for fear of being attacked by by fellow soldiers, like you mentioned. And going back to that, uh, the Pentagon story, one of the reasons, or the Pentagon study, one of the reasons why... It's gotten so many headlines this year is because um, it said that uh, about 2,900 sexual assaults were reported last year, and that's up nearly 9% from the year before, and about two-thirds of those cases involved rape or aggravated assault. Now, I did see um, a press release from the Department of Defense talking about these statistics, and it attributes that 9% increase to the fact that uh, more soldiers are simply more aware of how to report sexual assault. And there's more, since there's more education about it, and there's more supposedly open um, dialogue about sexual assault in the military and understanding what exactly constitutes sexual assault, um, the numbers are going up because of higher reporting. Right. But despite the increase in the number of reports, there's still a fairly low number of these cases actually going to some sort of military court and getting a conviction for the male involved. Right, Molly. If um, if a soldier thinks that he or she's been sexually assaulted, they can um, report that to something called the Sexual Assault Prevention and Response Unit. But within that, there's something called a restricted report that they can make, which means that they can go and tell someone that they think something, you know, did happen, that sexual assault did occur, but an investigation will not be open. So kind of like you said, um, even though people are coming forward and um, 
talking about these crimes that are happening, there there might not be anything that really comes of it at all. And the fact of the matter is, is these restricted reports are painted as a kind of reform for these women, that they're better than the old way of openly reporting to your superior that you've been raped or assaulted, Mm -hmm. because that opened up women to even more harassment by fellow soldiers. You know, you don't want to be a snitch in the military. And so doing it in an open way, uh, was very dangerous and women didn't want to open themselves up to it. They wanted to be, you know, these tough soldiers respected for who they were. So they think this restricted reform is, you know, a step forward. But the fact of the matter is, is they can't move forward with any charges until the women, you know, essentially make it unrestricted and reveal who they are, who right. it was, when it happened, et cetera. So I don't know if these reforms will do anything in the long run, but I guess it's good now that people are aware of the problem. Yeah, and and on top of that, the Pentagon, according to this CBS news story, the Pentagon has said that up to 80% of sexual assaults that happen aren't being reported at all. So, I mean, at least there is some openness about the situation and people know what's going on, so maybe um, we'll see you know, improvements with that. But at the same time, it is still a huge problem, especially in these intense combat zones. Um, and, and that comes to brings us around to this issue of what happens when these women are coming home. The, uh, the issue of post-traumatic stress disorder among specifically among male soldiers has been a big news story in the past year or so of, um, high rates of suicide and violence among soldiers who have come home from war and, uh, so the question is, if all of these sexual assaults are happening, how is that affecting, in combination with combat, how is that affecting women soldiers who are coming home? Because uh, there was a, um, a blog post that I read from the Defense Centers of Excellence, which is part of the Department of Defense, um, talking about psychological health for military women. And it mentioned that um, a comparison of male and female veterans from Vietnam and Gulf Wars suggests that men are three times more likely to be given a PTSD diagnosis. And unfortunately, this seems to be sort of a byproduct of women having to be so tough to even make it onto these, you know, quote unquote, front lines in the first place. You know, if you have to display this emotional toughness, then when you come home and have these symptoms, then the mental health experts still not really seeing women as part of, you know, this fighting military force. Just give them a diagnosis of depression, anxiety, and they may not be getting the care they need for the PTSD, which, you know, vicious circle might, in fact, be fueled by a a possible sexual assault. Right. And uh, and that's one of the things that this um, this post from the Defense Centers of Excellence points out is this cultural expectation of, you know, women really having to uphold the idea of being a true soldier, you know, which is usually, you know, very tough, masculinized idea that we have of, of someone in the military. Yeah. So it, it is a vicious circle right now. It's a good news, bad news situation where we do have some awesome women out there kicking butt taking names and proving they can fight on the front line, but at the same time, they still do face um, an uphill battle. They're, they're working hard to make equality happen. Yeah, absolutely. So a big shout out to all our troops, male and female. Yeah, definitely. And if you have any military experience or you know someone in the military and would like to share any stories about that with, uh, with me and Molly, uh, please feel free to email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And as always, if you want to check out what Molly and I are doing during the week, you can head over to our blog. It's called How To Stuff. And you can also read um, more info about um, the military and the wars going on right now. All of this and much, much more at howstuffworks.com. 
com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.